I'm going to be sharing from the book of Romans, chapter 12. This passage, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll continue on in the chapter, but this passage was uh, basically some of the first sermons I ever heard uh, when I was a baby Christian in 1972. Our pastor at that time, my pastor was a man by the name of Bill Rogers, and he, I, I don't remember him preaching anything else. He may have, I don't know that he did though, but all I remember is that it seemed like every single Sunday he would say, from Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, and then he would give us a sermon. Now, I got a feeling my message will be a little different than his were because he was kind of involved in some strange doctrines, okay? Uh, part of the, he was part of the shepherding movement and kind of on the fringes of the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it movement, you know? And so he had a little different idea of what these verses meant to us. And so my message may be a little more tame than that, but uh, God bless Pastor Roger. He's in heaven now, and uh, I'm sure he's, he got excited when he heard I was going to teach this, you know? If you would, stand as we do so often when we read the Word of God. Pastor Corey has a stand in honor of the Word of God, and we'll just read, I'll read for you uh, the first two verses, and then we'll continue on in our message today. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, otherwise known as the only blessed version. That's not true. That's not true. Actually, you know, as a pastor, I had many people ask me over the years, Pastor, what version of the Bible should I get? I'd say the one that you'll read. One that you'll read. The only caveat I have to that is don't get the New World Translation. That's the Jehovah's Witness Bible. So stay, steer clear of that one. But any other version you like, if you understand it, if it helps you to grow in the Lord, then by all means, be blessed by it, okay? But I'm reading from the New King James Version. And Paul the Apostle re, uh, writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all that is in it, all the meat and, and just a wonderful nutrients, Lord, that you have for us from this entire 12th chapter of Romans. Pray, Lord, that you would just bless the hearer, Lord, and the speaker alike as we just give you this time to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You can be seated. Now, Paul the Apostle wrote this epistle to the Romans, the church. He'd not been there yet, but he wrote to the Christians in Rome. And I like what he says in the very beginning. He says, I beseech you, therefore. When he says, I beseech you, he's saying, I plead with you. Some versions even say, I beg you to do these things. He's not using his apostleship as some kind of authoritarian thing. And you do this or else, you know, you'd better do what I say. He's saying, I plead with you, please, please live your life in accordance to the things that I'm about to tell you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And by the way, if you're uh, anytime at Calvary Chapel, you know that whenever we see a therefore, 
we ask, what is the therefore, therefore, okay? And this was an easy one. Paul is saying, in light of everything else I've told you, from Romans chapter one, verse one, all the way through chapter 11, he's been telling them of all the blessings that are theirs in Jesus Christ. All the blessings grafted in, no longer an outsider to the holy things of God, but you've been grafted in. He's telling them that there's therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. He's told them all things work together for the good for those who are the called, those who love God. So therefore, in, in light of all those things, he says, I beseech you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's been said, and I agree, there's a problem with living sacrifices, okay? And that is that they tend to have a, this, this uh, tendency to crawl off the altar, you know? And, and that certainly would apply to me, and I would guess to you as well, you know? We wanna present ourselves, but gosh, you really want me to go that far, Lord? You really want me to, to be that weird <laughs> or, you know, whatever? You, you really want me to be that committed to you? And the answer is absolutely yes. God wants us to present our whole bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there are some back in the Greek mythology and some of the religions today even, that say our bodies don't really matter. Our bodies are whatever happens in our bodies, that's just the way it is, you know? You know, some say, you know, the body is a great servant, but can also be a horrible master. Would you agree with that? And so he says, present your bodies, everything about you, your mind, your soul, your spirit, everything about you, present it to God like a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Now, remember the Old Testament sacrifices? Whenever they would bring a lamb or a goat or a calf, they were to bring those animals without spot and blemish, right? They were to be perfect. They were not to bring the animal that, that, that uh, was blind or the animal that had a crippled leg or the animal that, you know, whatever the spot or blemish would be, they were not to bring their second best to God, but bring the best you got. Now, I don't know about you, but when I present myself to God, I'm not that. I still have spot and blemish. But thank the Lord, thank the Lord that Jesus Christ took my place. He took your place too on that cross. Presented himself holy and acceptable an unblemished lamb of God without sin. And the Bible says that he's imputed that to you and to me. So we, when we present ourselves, God sees us as holy and acceptable. All he wants is our will, our willingness to do that. That's what he wants from us today. And so hopefully as we get through this message, we'll have that kind of thought about this. Now, I like the version, the translation by J.B. Phillips in this passage. On Monday nights, I go to a fellowship, and we have one of the guys that goes there. He has the Bible, the message. And people lay laugh at the message. That's not, that's not a real Bible or whatever, you know. But there's some great stuff in there. 
just like J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament. I don't know if anybody of you, uh, any of you have that, but I would really recommend it. It's the way that he puts things is so beautifully. Here's how he writes this particular passage. J.B. Phillips, Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good and it meets all his demands and moves you toward the goal of true maturity. J.B. Phillips, that's wonderful stuff. But back in the New King James, Paul is saying, I'm pleading with you to present your bodies, literally everything about you, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable can also be translated rational or logical. It's your logical service. Remember that therefore and why it's therefore? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything about you. The Greek word that is translated reasonable for us here is actually logikos. And logikos actually means of the word. So you present yourself according to the word. It's important to know the word of God, isn't it? And this is one of the reasons, because, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want? Read the word, and you'll find out exactly what he wants. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, one of the things that really bums me out in the church today, and some of the movements that are going in the church right now, is how much the church is trying to be more like the world. They, they want to, if we just be more like the world, then the world will understand what we're saying and they'll come and join us, you see? But, but I have an observation I'd like to make. It seems to me that the more the church attempts to be like the world, the less successful she is. That the church is always the most successful when they are least like the world. And so that's, that's a bummer. <laughs> Don't try to be like the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Some people like to blame their attitudes and their actions and reactions to their heritage, you know, to their background, you know, my genetics or whatever. I happen to be a Mescalera Apache. That's my background, okay? Or half anyway. <laughs> my dad used to tell us all the time, you know, you're related to Geronimo. Geronimo was your great, great, great grandfather, you know? And oh, I, that, I took pride in that, you know? So whenever I got in a fight or something, I say, Geronimo, you know? <laughs> but when I got saved, God said, no more Geronimo, okay? You're now mine. You're part of my seed, part of my upbringing, you see? And so he's made me new, and we'll get to more of that later on. Don't be conformed to the world, Paul says. John the Apostle, the beloved one, echoes that in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away, but you and I are going to live forever. So why would we want to be part of something that's going to be destroyed? So he says, don't do that. Then James 4.4 4, 
goes a step further and says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. We don't wanna be enemies of God. We wanna be his friends. We wanna be called his sons and daughters. And Paul here is giving us some good ways to do that and to, to show the world that we do belong to God. Paul goes on to say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Ephesians chapter four and verse 23, he repeats that by saying, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. I was born again on April the 19th of 1972. I wasn't always like this. I was a drug addict. I was a lush I was immoral. I, I talked like nastiness. It was just awful, the stuff that came out of my mouth. And God said, I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna make you into a different person. And so my life's verse for 47 years now, 48 years now, sorry. 48 years, my life's verse has been uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You've heard it said before, and I think it's well said. I may not be what I'd like to be. I may not be everything you want me to be, but I thank God that I'm not what I used to be. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's what Paul wants us to live out is this new creation. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he wants to live his life through me because it will do wonders for the world. We live in a world today that it needs Jesus Christ more than ever before. I think you'll all agree with that. We're not gonna preach him into the kingdom. We're not even gonna beg him into the kingdom. We're going to lead them by example into the kingdom. That's the way God's going to do it, I believe. Romans 12, continuing, Paul says, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I don't know about you, but I, I want God's perfect will to occur in my life, you know? A lot of things that I've asked for over the years, and now I can say, thank God he didn't give me what I wanted. It would have ruined me. It would have destroyed me. But you know what? His perfect will, that's what we want because his will is good and it will bring fruit in our lives. From Romans chapter 12, Paul continuing, speaking from verse three uh, and forward, much about the gifts of the spirit and of the way the gifts are to be used in the body of Christ. I'd encourage you to read Ephesians chapter four because that gives a even greater summation of these things. But I'm gonna speak on a few of the things that he says in that uh, part of the scriptures because they are very helpful. This nugget from Romans 12 verse three, Paul says, and not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's a hard one for most people. It's hard for us not to think more highly of ourselves 
than when we think of other people. Usually when we see other people, we say, yeah, they're not quite up to it, you know? They're not as progressed as I am, you know? I've, I've gone a lot further in my faith and so on and so on and so on. God wants us to find the best in other people, especially other Christians. Maybe they don't think exactly like you do. Maybe they don't behave or respond exactly like you do, but you know what? They're on the same journey we're on, maybe just not at the same place. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And especially in this world, that's a hard thing. Because in this world, it tells us if you just assert yourself, you know, you, go, you can be anything you want to be and all that kind of stuff, you know. I want to be what God wants to make me. Praise the Lord that he's promised that he's going to complete the work that he began in me. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. It's going to happen. You're going to be presented faultless before the throne. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The world thinks we're going to get there by asserting ourselves, by, you know, climbing the ladder over everybody else's back and stuff like that. No, we are to be the meek ones. We are to be the humble ones. Matthew twenty-two thirteen, I believe, says, the proud shall be debased, but the humble will be exalted. Verse 9, Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be without hypocrisy. The word in the Greek is hypocrites. And the word in the Greek was about or showed that there were those stage actors in Greek culture who played a part. They acted like they were something, and more so, they wore masks to do it. They would pick up a mask and it would have a happy face, and the people would say, oh, he's happy, you know? And maybe they'd laugh or they'd clap, you know? And then he'd pick one up that had a sad face, and the audience would cry or whatever. They were hypocrites, hypocrites. On the subject of masks, I, I read the other day a pastor who said, you know, I don't know why so many Christians are so opposed to wearing masks. They've been doing it for years. I said, ouch, that hurts, you know, right? A hypocrites. First Timothy chapter one and verse five says, the purpose of the word of God, remember we're to be giving our service in a logicus way, according to the word, the purpose of the word of God is that we might love from a pure heart from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Sincere. The word sincere comes from a Roman or a Latin word, sincerus, which means without wax. You see, back in those days when the Bible was being written, you had these great sculptors, these artists, who would make great statues. But maybe, you know, they got sidetracked, excited, whatever, and they accidentally chipped off a, a statue's nose or a statue's ear. Well, they learned how to grind the marble into powder, mix it with wax, and then remake it and put the nose back on, reattach the ear or whatever. The only problem with that is they'd put it out in their patio or whatever, and whenever it was hot and the sun started beating down on that wax, 
the nose would slip down past the mouth or whatever. And so if you wanted a really good statue, it would say sincerus, without wax. So that's where the word sincere comes from, you know? You don't want to be a hypocrite. You want to be sincere in your love because you don't want when the, the heat is turned on that you're going to start melting like some phony statue. In Psalm 34, 14, the psalmist there exhorts us, depart from evil and do good. It's not enough to simply be able to boast, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't hang around with the girls that do. I mean, that's good. That's a wonderful thing, okay? But Paul says we want to go further than that. You know, when I first got saved, again, I was a drug addict, I was a immoral, I was just a potty mouth, whatever, you know, and God changed a lot of those things very quickly in me. It didn't take long at all. But you know, there's been a, a deeper work going on, all that fine sanding and all that for years and years now. I'm not done yet. What does that old saint say? Be patient with me, God isn't finished with me yet. He's not done, but he's doing a work. He's sanctifying me or setting me apart for his glory. And he wants to do the same for all of us. Paul says in verse 10 of our passage, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Normally when we see that word brotherly love, we think of the word phileo. And I'm not talking about the fish sandwich from McDonald's, you know, phileo fish. You know, I'm talking about the, the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love. But here he uses a different word. He uses the word philostorgos, which has the connotation of, yes, brotherly, friendly love or whatever, but also family, familial love. It's a high form of love. God says, Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Verse 10 also says, in honor giving preference to one another. We're not to take the attitude of the world. You know, I'm looking out for number one. You better look out for number one because you know what? If you don't look out for yourself, nobody else will look out for you. How many times have we heard that? Look out for number one. Don't worry about other people. Look out for number one. You know what? We're to strive to be more like Jesus, more like Paul the apostle, or more like Brian Piccolo. You're probably saying, who in the world is Brian Piccolo? Brian Piccolo was a professional football player, played for the Chicago Bears back in the 60s, I believe. One of his teammates was Gail Sayers. And Gail Sayers watched Brian Piccolo's life. Brian Piccolo led him to the Lord. And Gail Sayers is still singing praises to Jesus because of Brian Piccolo's life. Brian Piccolo said, Piccolo said uh, I am third. It's God first, you are second, and I am third. Interesting, I, I watched that movie silently, okay, when my wife was giving birth to our third son, Michael, and uh, we were at Community Hospital in Long Beach, and right outside the window was a drive-in theater, the Circle Drive-In. And that movie, I Am Third, was on the screen. Now, I had watched it before, so I knew basically what was going on. I, I couldn't, you know, follow along with every word they're saying. He said this, and he, you know. 
But it was all about Brian Pickle's life who died of a rare, rare form of blood cancer. He died and led Gail Sayers to the Lord in the process. I want to be like Brian Piccolo, don't you? Men, men Gail Sayers being one of them, says he, that man lived his life for other people. We have such a hard time with that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, exerts us further on the subject. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We have the tendency to, again, put other people down. They're not like I am. I would never do that. I would never behave like that. That's not the way I would do it, you see. We're to esteem others better than ourselves. That's the way that we're to esteem. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, I suppose the toughest commandment to live by for anybody is not one of the big ten. You know, the ones that Moses carried around under his arms on the, the stone, the tablet stones, stone tablets, I'm sorry. But the toughest commandment comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. And there it simply says, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember when the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? They thought for sure he's gonna say, thou shalt not kill, you know, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, whatever. He says the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with your, all your mind, with all your heart, and with all your soul. Whatever order they come in. And he says, and the second is like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two hang all of the words of the prophets and the lawgivers. If you fulfill just those two commandments, you're fulfilling everything that God requires of you. If you're living by the law. Tough commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you know. And I, I hope there's nobody here that has the smart aleck response that the, uh, uh, that the young Pharisee did when Jesus said that. He said, well, who's my neighbor, you know? I don't want that guy to be my neighbor. I don't like that neighbor because he mistreats my dog. That one, you know, yelled at my child. I don't like that neighbor. So, how, you know, which neighbor should I love as myself? Look around you here. This is a great place to start, isn't it? I love what Jay Vernon McGee used to say. You know, praise the Lord that we can, we can come together as a body, as a family of God, and, and I have these people to do all my practicing on, you know, on loving my neighbor as myself. Somebody else has said that the, your neighbor is the person nearest to you with the greatest need. Maybe you have a neighbor that has a great need. I'm not, not talking about in your neighborhood. Just look around you, wherever. Someone has a great need, go be a neighbor to them. Fulfill the law, Amen. Verse 11 says, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Fervent in spirit can be translated boiling, boiling over in your fervency to serve the Lord. Getting red hot in order to serve the Lord. In doing these things, 
be, just be on fire for those things. Jesus spoke to this often. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And by this, men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. He also said in his Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you want to be a good witness for Jesus Christ? Too often we get the wrong idea that a witness is someone who goes on Saturday sharing the gospel from door to door or whatever. I'm going on my witnessing plan this week, you know? I'm going to go witnessing today. Those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. But witnessing isn't so much an activity that we do. It's a state of being of who we are or who we should be. That's true witnessing. The word witness actually comes from a Greek word, martyrus, where we get our English word martyr. And that's how it was developed over the years. Because the early Christians were giving their lives, they were being put to death for their testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't want to be put to death that way, okay? But you know what? If that's what it took in order for me to live my life for Jesus Christ, then, praise the Lord, I offer it willingly. I hope you would too. Verse 12, Paul says, we should be rejoicing in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now, he's not saying here, you know, I want you to go out and and, and say this little poem, you know, star bright, star night, you know, First star I see tonight, I wish I may, I wish I might, have this wish I give tonight, or whatever he's saying, right? That's not what he's saying. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is an absolute certainty, confidence of expectation that God will fulfill his word, that God will fulfill his promises to us. That's what Christian hope is. And so we're to rejoice in hope. And then he says, and be patient in tribulation. Now, this is a tough one. Be patient in tribulation. He's not talking about some small irritant. You know, you, oh man, I just, that's a bummer. I didn't like that. You know, that person made fun of me or whatever, you know. He's talking about real tribulation. And there are some of you I know that are going through real tribulation. He says, be patient in tribulation. But he doesn't leave it there. He goes on to say, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Hey, that's great. That, 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 if, if I'm continuing steadfastly in prayer, that is only going to assist me to patiently endure the tribulation. Verse 13, he says, and given to hospitality. One of the things that should mark a Christian body is that we are given to hospitality. It's actually one of the qualifications of being a church leader. Go to the two pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, and as Paul is giving them instructions on how to select leaders to come alongside of him in the church, he says that they ought to be given to hospitality. They ought to be people who are willing to have people in their home. Now, actually, the word in the Greek 
Hospitality means to entertain strangers, <laughs> willing to entertain strangers. That's not too many people do that. You know, I really like Hebrews 13 too. It says, do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That's an awesome thought, I think, you know? Wouldn't that be cool to know that, you, that you'd had an angel in your home? Maybe one or more of you has had someone come and help you. Maybe you had a flat tire on the side of the freeway or some, and some guy comes along, helps you and leaves and you never see him again. And you think, was well, that an angel? Who knows? But be willing to entertain the stranger. Be hospitable. Then he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them who persecute you. You know, that one verse alone, through all the Bible, that one verse alone should mark us as set apart for the Lord. It should mark us as Christians, that we are the people who are blessing the people who are persecuting us. That's not an easy one, I have to admit. You know, I, I tell my wife, I talk to punch that guy in the nose, you know, right? Bless those who persecute you, not to punch him in the nose. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. A lot of persecution in the world today. We've always, as American Christians, we've always looked at it from across the oceans, haven't we? Yeah, they're being persecuted there in China. Oh, they're really being persecuted in, uh, at the time, uh, Soviet Union, Communist Russia, whatever. Oh, they're being persecuted. And you go down the list, right? But persecution is getting closer and closer and closer to the back door of Calvary Rathdrum. How will we respond if and when that happens? Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. This type of response will certainly set us apart from Geronimo, amen? It'll set us apart. People will say, that guy's different. That guy is weird maybe, but he's different. And that's cool. Jesus continued along those lines in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that the person that shows the world this kind of love, that we as Christians, we are in fact the sons of our Father in heaven. This is the way the world knows that we belong to God, that we are his sons and daughters. Not because we carry a big furry Bible under our arm, you know, that's got all kinds of markings in it and everything. It's not because, you know, we, we wear the T-shirts that say that we're Christians, you know, or not even if we wear a big cross. And I think that's cool when people do that. But that's not the way the world's gonna know that we are Christians, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. They're gonna know it by how we respond when we are abused, when we are persecuted, even when we're made fun of, you know? Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, it's a lonely place to be when you are suffering and no one is weeping with you. That's a tough place to be. But you know what? I experienced something in my life that was just as tough 
and I was rejoicing. My wife and I were a part of a ministry. It's kind of a weird ministry. <laughs> we were involved in a couple of weird ministries, you know, but we were involved in a ministry that was uh, kind of a faith healing thing, you know? And the people who were serving in the ministry, they had their girls with the word of knowledge and their uh, elders, with the th they all had their ministry. And Linda and I were in the choir and we dutifully sang the songs that we sang in the choir and we were there every Saturday night without fail. And if it went someplace, took the ministry on the road, we would go with them. But Linda was pregnant, big pregnant, okay? And she was gonna have a baby. And so she stepped down from the ministry, much to the dismay and disdain of the people in that ministry. You're gonna give up the, your ministry to have a baby? Unheard of, you know, right? <laughs> but she had our first, our firstborn Becky. And she had her in the afternoon and I'm, I was dedicated. I went to the service that night. I mean, today I'd stay with her in the hospital. I went to the service. And I was really excited. I had a pocket full of uh, bubblegum cigars, you know. I was going to give them out to all the guys. Hey, it's a girl or whatever, right? I was rejoicing. And, and you know what? Nobody cared. They didn't care. They were too busy serving the Lord. It's sad to weep alone. It's just as sad to rejoice alone. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Verse 16 says, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. That's, that's tough. James chapter two, verses one through four, he gives us a clear warning against favoring the good looking people, the rich people, the ones that are well-dressed people and everything, you know? Don't, don't tell them, hey, you come up here. I want to sit right, right in the front, man. I want you to, I, I want to everybody know that you're my friend, you know? And then the guy comes in with the tattered clothes and he smells a little bit or whatever. He say, please sit in the back. No, better yet, sit in the room apart from us. You know, you can watch us on video or whatever. James warns against that. Now, Linda and I, my wife and I, we served in youth ministry for a number of years. And when we were serving in youth ministry, one of the recurring themes of our messages was to the high school kids and all, don't form cliques and leave other kids out. That's just mean. It just isn't nice, you know? And now I've learned after 48 years of being a Christian, uh, the church needs to hear that, you know? We adults need to hear it as well. May Calvary Rathdrum be known as a welcoming, open-armed, embracing church. That's what I want us to be known for. People come in, they say, it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what you smell like, they welcome you. I tell the story of the time that I went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and I, I think it was a Tuesday night service. Odin Fong was leading it. And he had a tendency to draw in some very rough people. I sat down, the sanctuary was pretty much full, I sat down and come sit next to me was this big, burly biker guy. He had on the patches and the, you know, the vest and everything. I don't know if it said Hell's Angel on the back, what it said, okay? But he came and sat next to me. He was rough looking. He was probably about 350 pounds, 
you know, big beard, scraggly hair, and he even smelled a little bit. But I'll never forget, the worship started, and this guy raised his arms and started crying, tears streaming down his face. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I, my heart was broken. My heart was broken. And I remember embracing him and just saying, you know what? He needed ministry. And I embraced him and said, it's okay, dude, it's okay. Jesus is here and he's gonna take care of it. What, what would we do if someone came in? Maybe they have one of those ear things that the, opens up the thing, whatever. Oh, that's weird, you know? To me, it just looks like it hurts, you know? <laughs> but, you know, you never know. They might raise their arms and just weep for the Lord. Are you going to be the one that's going to embrace them? Calvary Rastrum, let's do those things. Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil. I mean, it sounds like a, 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 a no doubt, whatever you call it, you know? Duh, you know? Don't want to repay evil for evil, and yet that's what we tend to do. Well, you say, well, the Bible says, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know? Say, if he punches me in the nose, I'm going to punch him right back in the nose. The problem is, if someone punches me in the nose and my nose gets bloody, I want to cut his arm off, you know? I believe that those scriptures actually are telling us how to mitigate our anger and limit it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. No amputation of arms, please, you know? That's not godly. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I think here, when he says, if it is possible, I think he's saying, you know, it's not always possible. Sometimes there are cantankerous people that just are not going to make friends with you. But whatever is dependent upon you, don't let it be on you that there's this schism going on between you and another person. Pursue peace. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, you want, I know, and I want for people to see Jesus in my life, through my life, in our church, we want people to see Jesus. This is how they're going to see Jesus, when we're behaving according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Your homework assignment is to go and read Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16, where Paul says, Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh and the, and the Spirit lust against each other, they fight against each other. Then he goes on to speak of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Take a look at those things. They'll really feed your soul, and it's good for us. We need to hear these things. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul is here quoting from the Torah, from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. Do not avenge yourselves, 
Therefore, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, this verse has been argued over and over again, okay? Like, what does it mean? Heaping coals of fire on someone's head. Does it mean that uh, they're gonna be so burned with, with conviction that they're gonna say, oh, I should never have treated that Christian that way, you know? Hey, possible. Or could it mean that when you're heaping coals of fire on someone's head, you're actually helping them? You see, back in Bible days, they didn't have, you know, lighters and, and even matches like we have. They would start a fire and keep the fire burning with uh, live embers or whatever. And many times they would carry a pot of live embers on their head, right? So they could go start a fire at their house or somebody else's house to cook with or whatever. And so by putting coals of fire on someone's head, that is on the pot in their head, they would be able to go and start a fire. So you were helping them. I'm not sure. I'm, the jury's out in my mind. Is, does it, is it something good? Is it something bad? Are you really like uh, just heaping all kinds of condemnation on them by doing it? I don't know. We'll find out, I guess, someday. But Proverbs 25 tells us the same thing. It tells us to, to put coals of fire on someone's head uh, by treating them kindly. But it goes on to say, and the Lord will reward you. And that's the real key here. We want God to reward us. Let's do the things that God's word tells us to do and we will be rewarded. Finally, the last verse of chapter 12 in Romans says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, no paybacks, no getting even, Instead, overcome evil with good. The people that I fear the most are those that say, I don't get mad, I just get even. You know? Oh, you know, once again, Geronimo, you know? Now, you know what? Don't get even. Don't get mad. Give place to God and allow him to do in that person what God wants to do in that person. That's the Christian thing to do. Someone has said that the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. Make him your friend. Do something friendly to them, for them. They're gonna have a hard time keeping you as an enemy after that, amen. This takes us back to the beginning of where we started. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and that acceptable and the perfect will of God. I want to leave the last word to Jesus because he is the last word, amen? He will have the last word. He said in Luke chapter nine and verse 23, if any man desires to come after me, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross was an instrument of death. Those of you who wear a cross around your neck, that's wonderful, I love it. But we could just as easily be wearing a electric chair around our neck. 
or a shooting squad or whatever, you see? Because it, it speaks of death. The cross is an instrument of death. We're to take up our cross daily. We are to die of ourselves daily and let Christ live his life through us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're so gentle and kind. Thank you, Lord, that your word, though it convicts us, because of your kindness, Lord, we repent. We want to be different, Lord. We want to be different individually. We want to be different as a church family. And we pray, Lord, by the power, by the glory of Jesus Christ, that you would do that in us individually and collectively. We thank you for what you will do. We're looking forward, Lord, to seeing the great work that you'll do in this church. Thank you for Pastor Corey and Luann. We pray that their vacation time would be refreshing. I know you're speaking to Corey, Lord, and that's a wonderful thing. We're looking forward to hearing what he's received from you. We thank you and praise you. We commit these words, this word, the word of God, to you and to our souls, in Jesus' name, amen.